Before this podcast begins, we'd love to give a quick shout out to Students for Environmental Concerns. They're holding a climate strike on Sunday, April 23rd to protest the university's failure to meet their promise to divest of all fossil fuels by fiscal year 2025. Currently, 9% of the university's investments make up about 73% of their emissions, and SECS is actively trying to change that. There were hundreds of students there last semester. There will be hundreds of students there this semester. It's a great cause. We'll be there, and we'd love to see you there as well. Again, that's on Sunday, April 23rd. They'll start at noon at Alma Mater. Also perfectly timed with this episode, SECS is launching a data visualization tool to make it easy for your average person to understand what the university is invested in. They're calling it Taurus.Earth, and it's launching May 2nd, so keep an eye out for that. And now, what you've all been waiting for, let's get into the episode. Welcome to another episode of Surface Tension. This is the podcast where we explore ideas and data visualizations that we encounter. Today, we have a guest that we're super excited about. He's someone that embodies what the podcast is all about, and that is cultivating your curiosity. Not only is he curious, but he goes out and answers the things that he's curious about. He's built countless data visualizations, including the GPA grade disparity tool that most students on U of I's campus use every time we go to select classes. Also, he's built a couple COVID visualizations that were used by key members of the government and has continued to work on a series of classes at UIUC to help to get statistics knowledge out to people for free outside of the university and to bring that knowledge into the university as well. Please welcome Dr. Wade Fagan Olmstad. Hey, thanks for having me. And we'll start off with a bit of a brief introduction for the people that don't know you. So to kind of provide a little bit of context to the conversation, who were you as a child and how did things kind of lead to computer science and data visualization? Oh, that's an amazing question. So I wrote my first program when I was four years old. Wow. So <laughs> my <laughs> Yeah, so my parents um so my dad was actually a meteorologist and he worked for the military for a while doing naval meteorology because it's really important to have the entire world's weather forecast when you have ships sailing around the world. Right. And then he moved into the government side, working for the National Weather Service. Mm. And they were one of the first really big government organizations to just embrace computing. Mm. So from when I was growing up, we had computers all over the place. Hmm. Um, there, in an early computer, there's something called BASIC, which is a programming language that's built into a Commodore 64. So we're talking like boomer technology here. <laughs> and... Um, I basically had that at my disposal and I was like, I can create something. I can type things on a computer and the computer does that. <laughs> and that was mesmerizing. And my parents loved it because I could just then like make a progress bar go up and just like draw characters. <laughs> and instead of whining and crying, wanting to do something, I was just like nerding out. Right. And so I first did that at four and I don't remember not knowing how to code. Whoa. So everything That's I nuts. do is just around the, yeah, this is like speaking English. That if I have a question, I just want to solve it. And the tool I have to solve is programming. It's changed. I don't program in basic anymore. But that was how I grew up and did a lot of just programming, just stupid stuff on a Commodore 64. <laughs> what type of stuff? What was the, from, from being a four-year-old making progress bars, where did it go from there? Yeah. So you can do like really fun effects with really simple code. So I saw there were it used to be books you could check out from the library that had like little miniature tutorials. Mm. So one of the things I remember doing really young was if you make uh, concentric circles and just make them zoom out, it looks like you're going through a portal. 
So you imagine just like, and then if you just tilt it sideways, you can actually look like you're going to the left, look like you're going to the right. And it's really like 10, 15 lines of code. It's not hard, <clears throat> but I felt like I was like being able to warp myself into alternate universe. And as like a <laughs> seven-year-old child, I was like just nerding out all the time <laughs> with this kind of stuff. So, um, and then there, um, I remember like one thing that told a bunch is when I was in fourth grade, um, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. And I wrote this Bill Clinton game as like my final project in a fourth grade class. <laughs> and that was probably the first thing I created that like hundreds of people used because a fourth grader made this. <laughs> uh, it was bad by all objective standards. Mm -hmm. But when somebody who's like 10, 11 years old made it, like people hype it up and right. it's, it was just really fun. So I think I've always been just seeing computing as a tool to share information. And I can't remember a time that I didn't do that. Oh, and then did, when did data kind of come into the picture then? It sounds like you had the coding foundations and the ability to work with the data. When was data made widely available to where you could make the data visualizations that you make today? Yeah, so let me take you back about 10 years ago to when I joined one of the top investment banks. So I was a strategist and the strategist sits on the trading floor behind the traders and the traders are there trying to find the best clients to make the most money for the firm. And we were working on commercial mortgages. So specifically this product called commercial mortgage-backed securities or CMBSs. Mm. And what a CMBS is basically, it's like a thousand commercial loans from buildings all across the world lumped together into one product. Because you might not just wanna buy like the Chipotle on Green Street, that loan, because what if Chipotle goes bankrupt? Mm -hmm. Instead you might wanna buy a thousand different loans. Some of them are restaurants. Some of them are office buildings. Some of them are industrial. So you basically diversify the risk. You mm -hmm. buy a single product that has a thousand underlying assets. And then um, you structure in such a way that as long as 30% of people make their rent payments, you're going to get paid out. Mm -hmm. So it's super secure, AAA investment grade rated. But then below the AAA stuff, there's double A, single A, AJs, like a, it's kind of below investment grade mm -hmm. um, quality products that's still sold on the open market. Okay. And that's where the money can be made. Mm. So the quants, the people behind the, or in the back office, the, the quants, the people in the back office, they would actually do all of this mathematical, mathematical modeling to basically say, okay, if China's GDP goes up to 7% instead of 5%, then we think this is going to pay out twice what it's worth. So this is a great investment, buy it now, it's cheap. Mm. Or if China's GDP went down to 3%, we think it's gonna lose money, people won't be making the mortgage payments, companies will go bankrupt and we're toast. So before I got there, the quants sent these spreadsheets that were just full of really, really great numbers, but the traders ignored them mm. because it was just way too complicated. It was just numbers. And they're, all they wanted to know was basically, should I buy or sell? And the quants would go about this hour-long discussion on, yes, this is why you should buy or this is why you should sell. What I was able to do when I joined that team was I saw that when I gave these sheets, nobody cared. But as soon as I transformed them into a visualization where they can actually pull out different information, ask the question about what do you think China's GDP is going to be next year? They spent hours with the exact same data. The data didn't change. The presentation changed everything. And seeing these Harvard MBAs, these like really smart business people just spend hours on data they already had because it was presented in a better way, like changed my perspective. Mm. And from working at 
from working in investment banking, like that was when I was like, I want to make sure that my passion and my life's work is around sharing data in a way that people can access it. And so that's where it all began. It's sort right. of like, I've already had these computing skills and I was like, I saw that data that already existed was meaningless if it was just stuck in a spreadsheet. But as soon as you gave it in a tool that was really easy to present, people just ate it up. Right. And from that moment, like the teams loved each other after that. Like it was kind of crazy because it used to be there was like this tension, maybe even surface tension between, <laughs> um, between the traders and the uh, quants. The quants felt like they were doing all this analysis and the traders weren't listening. The traders felt like they were spending millions of dollars on these like PhDs that, on physics and math, these geniuses, but these geniuses weren't delivering. So just being able to present the information, like let the geniuses shine and let the traders understand and use that information and interpret it the way they can, you find the best match. And I think the team made a lot of money because of that. That's amazing. Right, yeah. Uh, one thing I wanna harp on there is you talked about this idea of access. Yeah. Something that you've done that a lot of people are familiar with, that we already talked about a little bit, was um, your GPA disparity tool. Yeah. And I think thousands of students have used it. I personally use it to pick all of my classes throughout college. Awesome, I'm glad you found it valuable. <laughs> Very valuable. I guess then what's your philosophy when it comes to these making these data visualizations super accessible? It seems like something that you um, really prioritize and emphasize. Yeah. I mean, if you build the greatest tool in the world and no one uses it, is it even worth building? Like, I think the biggest thing is I think that I always think about building the thing I wish I had. <laughs> so I, when I advise students, I wanted to know which course were going to be the toughest courses which course were gonna be easy courses. And I wish I had this information to help out students. So I built a tool that I would wanna be able to pull up in my own advising sessions with students. And I just also put it on my website for anyone else to use and post on Reddit, like shared it on my social media. And the next day, like, well, blew up. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. And it's just like, really, I build things that I want answers to. And I just put it out there and hope other people find it useful. I think that's a great segue into the rest of the episode. I think for the rest of the episode, we're going to be hopefully looking into your inspiration for projects. So it sounds like similar, somewhere down that rabbit hole that you just mentioned. And then getting into uh, where, what do you do once you have that inspiration? How do you go about building the project, choosing the type of visualization or your approach for that project? How other people should get engaged in projects? And then we'll close it up on some closing remarks uh, from there. But starting with where you get ideas for projects, where do you get ideas from projects? It sounds like there's things that you want in your world. Do you look for those things avidly? Do you take notes on things that you notice that you want? Or how do these things kind of come about? This is a great question. The biggest way I get project ideas is I literally want to find out something. I Google it. And when I Google it, I get no search results that are good. Mm -hmm. Or the data is just too hard to find. And then right. I'm like, all right, this needs to exist in the world. Let's build it. Does that <laughs> happen very often? It seems oh, like... all the time. Oh, okay, okay. All the time. Google, <laughs> I mean... You've got to see this. Like when you're Google searching something, like you're mm -hmm. really like, oh, I just really want to know this. And you just get crap Google results mm -hmm. or you get Google results that leave you with more questions than answers. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that that's what, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just crazy into Google searching everything. <laughs> um, and now it's like, I'm having conversation with ChatGPT and like ChatGPT will be like, it'll give me some like generic answer. And I'm like, no, but I want to know, like, why is this this way? Or what's the things that influence this to be the way it is mm -hmm. right. and when there's not an answer i just want to dive deep and then when i find the answer i don't want to write about it i want to share other people the the journey that i took to get to the answer 
Is there an example of like the last time, the last thing that you Google searched or ChatGPT that was frustrating? Um, so, so I mean, literally like three days ago. So one of the things I'm building out this summer um, is more data science stuff because I needed to sort of really explain how a hypothesis test and Z test kind of interlinked because a topic that we cover in data science discovery is how to do a Z test. And you get this P value at the end. And if P is less than 0.05, there's evidence to reject the null hypothesis. Right. Right. Where does that 0.05 come from? And why does it relate to the normal distribution? No idea. Great question. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, why? And I can, and I can explain like how you compute these Z scores, but there's actually a bell curve at the end. And you can see when that 0.05% is there by seeing the region of the extreme sides of the curve shaded. And it's all super intuitive if you visualize it. But I could not mm -hmm. find a single visualization in like 30 Google search results that actually allows you to see that and put in your own data to explore this yourself. Right. Like it shouldn't be that hard. This is introductory statistics. Like right. this is easy. <laughs> and I was like, this needs to exist in the world. So it's now on my project list. That sounds like almost like three blue, one brown on YouTube where he visualizes really, yes. really hard math concepts in intuitive, intuitive ways. Legitimately, he's like the only person that has even something close to what I want to exist in the world. He's got this great central limit theorem video that mm. is right along that lines. We'll have to check it out. Yeah. Is there other areas that you consume information from? So a website that came to mind when we were writing up, uh, getting ready for this podcast was Our World in Data, where they take tons of questions about the world and then put that out. On, online and show people in visualizations ways to think about the world. Where do you find interesting stats or where do you find data in general, I guess, uh, once you have a curiosity or a question? Yeah, data is usually the easy part. Oh, okay. So I find that there's a ton of data in the world. Um, a lot of it is sometimes hard to get at because it's not in this nice like CSV format or it's not, not in a nice JSON format. Like there's a lot of work just doing data cleaning. Hmm. But I, I don't know. I feel like there's usually... It, usually data is not, maybe the, it's the problems I'm focusing on, but I find that getting access to data is usually not the hardest part. It's usually actually understanding what makes sense. I don't know. It depends. Like sometimes there's a data I wish I had. Like I wish I had more university data for GPA stuff. <laughs> um, so it's, I guess, sorry, this is like a long-winded train. But the way I think just thinking through this, like I really find the data and then I try and tell the story with the data. And if the data doesn't exist, I don't let that be a barrier. Like if I'm not going to say, okay, I don't have this data, so I'm just not going to tell a story. I'm going to tell a story and that story, if it needs that data, I'm going to leave the ending of that story to be, let's get that data. Right. So I don't really see it as like not getting access to data. I just see it maybe not having as complete a story as I want to tell, but I'm going to tell whatever story I can tell. And leaving it off for the next person to pick up or when that data becomes available, yeah. you pick up or yeah. et cetera. Because like one analysis that we did in the GPA visualization um, that we never followed up on, but you'll find in one of the introductory sections, is the teams, one of the teams I worked with, we started analyzing things like day of time analysis. So is the GPA worse at 9 a.m. classes compared <laughs> to like 2 p.m. classes? Right. Um, probably. <laughs> right? Is there right. a correlation there? And what does that tell us? And we actually started doing the analysis and we said that would be really, really interesting and that's a story that requires us to link it with the like the course explorer data set to actually know when the course met, link that section number with the actual GPA, right. and do that analysis. And I think that actually is an interesting project that would be really valuable to be like, is there actually some advantage of not taking a 9 a.m. class? Hmm. 
Right. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Because what your experience, like you probably hate your 9 a.m.s. Like, yeah. I don't have 9 a.m.s. <laughs> the 8 a.m.s especially. Yeah. Oh, even yeah, worse. Yeah. Because yeah. like I'm guessing more people skip an 8 or 9 a.m. than a 2 p.m. Right. Absolutely. And then I wonder if there's um, any value in seeing whether the class like requires attendance or something like that. Yeah. And then you could look into whether people attending the lectures actually has an impact on their GPA. Yeah. And I love that. That's like two more projects, like just right. the attendance required, yes or no, and then attendance. Like you've got four-dimensional data now. You're a hypercube. Right. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I think one of the themes that we've already talked about of our podcast is cultivating curiosity. You've talked a little bit about how you see problems and want to address them if you can't find an answer. How do you stay curious? How do you think about asking and answering some questions that you have? I think it's almost a mindset more than anything. Hmm. Like, I think I'm never satisfied until I completely understand the problem or the solution. So I feel like I there's very few things where I leave them like, oh, okay, I want to know nothing more. <laughs> Like, I think like every single time I'm in a lecture, every time I'm reading something, a news article, anything, like, I'm like, I want more details. Like, I want more information. So it's almost as if even your projects now and data visualizations that you've created are ongoing almost. Like, they haven't answered the question. Yeah, there's no visualization I've ever created that I feel like is done. <laughs> That's crazy, yeah. Like, I feel, I feel like, like they're so comprehensive. Oh, but there's so much that's still missing. Like mm -hmm. I could give, take any one of my visualizations, I could tell you like five things I'd love to extend on it. And so then when, when the constraint on you pushing that out even more is maybe access to data, what do you do from there? I think if, if it's access to data, then it's really just like sharing. If the constraints access data, I think then it's building a visualization that presents the need for that data. Mm, I see what you're saying. So some visualizations that that didn't go as viral as GPA visualization is some diversity visualization. So one right. thing that we really emphasized on one of the visualizations is the fact that the racial disparity at the University of Illinois is really hard to track because mm. one of the races they allow you to select is international. Right, right. Which just loses so much information. Right. So we mm. made a visualization that just shows how literally a third of the university is international. Which they could be any, Which, any of the races. Right, doesn't capture anything. Hmm. And really tried to drive home the point that we can't be serious about this analysis if we're not going to have good data. Yeah. And you yeah. can find that racial diversity um, visualization. And definitely when we first had put, out, put that visualization out there, like I was pounding on doors, basically being like, we need better data. We need to start collecting this data. Hmm. And worse, they've actually fixed this. But um, in the early days of this data collection, you could only select a single category too. Oh, wow. You couldn't be like, biracial. for example, yeah, biracial or even um, white international or Asian international. Oh, wow. You could just be Asian or international. It seems that international yeah. wouldn't even be a category. I feel like that's just a separate right? data point <laughs> entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So given that's the data we have, like we made a story that basically shared like, this is bad. We should be doing better. That's really cool. So it's almost using the absence to kind of summarize you're using the absence of data to show that this collection is necessary and we should be collecting this type of thing yeah just telling the story that if we care about racial diversity we can't just be like international is good enough right the data collection has to reflect that yeah yeah moving on from that then once you have that idea so for racial diversity or for 
any of these, it seems like a lot of people would get stuck with maybe a grandiose idea or they have get overwhelmed by the amount of data or different options that they could take yeah. like things along those lines. Yeah, How do you even where to start? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Where to start? How do you find a place to start? How do you find kind of the avenue that you want to take? How do you do it without getting bogged down and getting overwhelmed initially? So I guess two different ways. One, having the story I want to tell. So I decide on like, what is the one sentence narrative that I want to share? After you've created it or? Like, what do I want? Like, given this data, I find this data set and I'm like, what is the narrative I want you to tell you? Mm -hmm. If I'm having a conversation with you, what do I want to present to you in one sentence? And then there's- And that's before you even begin exploring the data, before you begin doing anything with the data? Before I begin any like Python coding or JavaScript coding. Mm -hmm. okay. Like before I type any code, like I've probably opened up the data set. I've looked at it. I, I know what bit. columns there are. I know whether or not this is clean data or dirty data. Right. Um, I know what the constraints of the data is. Um, I know kind of what's possible at a high level. Okay. And basically I give myself basically a one sentence mission statement about what is this project's mission? What do I want to build? So what would that have been for the disparity tool? Oh, like grade disparity? Mm -hmm. So for the grade disparity stuff, it's like I want to present the difficulty level of University of Illinois courses in an easy and accessible way. Okay. Makes sense. I like that a lot. And then what was your second step after that? Then the second step is one week deadline. Hmm. Hmm. Something exists in a week or the project dies. Well, I really like that. And would you, do you set that deadline to say, if you can't complete this in a week, you can't complete it indefinitely? So, so it doesn't have to be completed, but there has to be something that exists in a week. Hmm. That basically when I have a new idea, it has to have enough of like motivation. Right. Like internal interest. Internal interest for me right. to find time to work on it in my schedule. And having that deadline also forces the issue to basically be like, I don't want to accumulate projects that I'm going to work on one day. Because I think there's so, one of the things that I, a pet peeve of mine is somebody who says, oh yeah, I want to work on this eventually. Or I have this idea that I want to work on someday. Mm -hmm. Like if it's an idea that's worth working on, do it today. Hmm. And that's one of the things I push all my students to in any of my talks or any of my classes is like, if we're going to build it, we're going to build it this week. We're not going to build it in three years. Right. And I think just having, and that's good, a good test to see whether or not the project's worth moving forward with. That is, a, there's enough excitement that you're going to find time to work on it. And then really make progress on it, meaningful progress every single week. Like some of these projects takes months to complete. But if you're making meaningful progress every week, then you're staying focused, you're staying connected with the project, and you're going to see it finish. How do you then, what does meaningful progress look like after that first initial week? So in the first initial weeks, like your MVP, you get something out that you're happy with. That's like kind of momentum is flowing. Yeah. Does it, is it a case by case basis of this is meaningful progress? Like do you dedicate a certain amount of time per week? Do you get the right people on it? How, do, how does that work? I think meaningful that? progress, it varies from different projects, but it's that if you were to show me an app from a week ago and an app from today, can I tell that something had been done? Mm. So sometimes it's a lot of like really back-end infrastructure so that now collecting the data takes one minute instead of 10 minutes. Right. So if I run those two scripts side by side, I can see that one finishes nine minutes earlier. Right. Um, if it's on the visualization side, if we're getting near completion, it may be like, okay, here we visualized one college. Now we're visualizing all nine colleges or all 10 colleges in the GPA visualization. Like there should be something that's not just, I thought about it. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And what's your working style when you are working on these projects? I remember in uh, 240 back in the day, 
you are, were pushing out updates really late at night were you uh, are you kind of like a night owl where you're working on stuff for a, for a long long periods of time in one chunk or are you kind of doing it throughout the day uh, so i think for any creative task you need long dedicated times to work on it i think it's really hard for creative people to be creative in 30 minute chunks yeah. um, i think there's a lot of people out there that kind of talk about the manager versus the creator mindset mm -hmm where the manager divides his or her time up into like 30 minute chunks. The creator needs to divide their time up into like four hour sprints. Yeah. Um, and I really believe in that. So I think a lot of what I create ends up being like, where can I carve out four uninterrupted hours? And how do you do that? Uh, not well. <laughs> <laughs> As Grant saw, 3 or 4 a.m. <laughs> Moving on, I guess, to uh, advice to others. Is there, what would you, what advice would you give to students uh, people that have time after graduation, educators on getting involved in projects and finding the answers to questions that they're curious about? I think the answer is just do it, build it. I think there's such a black hole of just, I need to learn more. I need to learn more. I need to learn more. I need to watch one more tutorial. I need to take one more course. I think there's so much value in just doing it. I think like you guys, you, I'm guessing you guys had a vague idea of how to do a podcast. 20 episodes ago. Yep. <laughs> but now, like, what you don't see is we're here in my office. They came by with a backpack full of equipment. We've got professional mics, two laptops, two cameras. <laughs> they are, like, nerding out. <laughs> like, they've become professionals not by reading more about it, but by doing it. Like, I'm guessing that version one, you had some audio issues, so you got different <laughs> mics. Yeah, right? content issues, too. Yeah. Content issues. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you figured out what's the right guest. Right. What's the right equipment? What's the right stuff? Like, I mean, these cameras, I'm guessing, are B-roll for, like, social feeds and stuff. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Like, you've... And I don't know, do you have two cameras when you first started? Nope. Mm, yeah. I don't think any amount of research could have got you to this point. I think having done it, having had some maybe not... Maybe B-tier episodes instead of the S-tier you're producing now. <laughs> um <laughs> So, like, I think, yeah, there's some visual, like, having created, like, 100 visualizations, there are some visualizations that are crap. Um, some of the visualizations that went viral, I did not think those were the other ones that went viral. <laughs> some of the ones that got, like, no hits at all, I think are actually, like, some of my best work. And I'm like, dude, why do anyone care about this? <laughs> I like that a lot. I think we have definitely experienced that making this. And yeah, I feel like is the more projects you like this, where you're very tangible and tactical about how you're going about it, you learn to pull that through into your next ones. And I think like you guys set yourself a deadline, right? Mm -hmm. One episode one every podcast week. every week. Yeah, right. We're trying to backlog it now. So let's say we have a week we don't have a guest or we haven't made yeah. a podcast. We still have something to roll up. But you grinded like those first few weeks to make sure that you had that like podcast every week. I'm guessing there's some days. That because it's Thursday when I see it dropped, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so I'm sure there's some Wednesday nights. Yeah, there's days that you were grinding. Yeah, <laughs> Thursday morning. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, you made the deadline. You made it happen, and I think there's some like you should be really proud of that. And I think that comes with being a creator and like creating something that's meaningful. Is you've done it, you've gotten better, you've improved it, and you gave yourself a deadline that forced you to do it. So I guess, then, yeah, personal question. Are you big on deadlines? Like maybe self-set deadlines? Yeah, I'm big on not hard, I've seen... hard deadlines, right. but on like making sure that everything has a totality and endpoint. I like that a lot. I've seen a lot of 
kind of narratives on how no one dies if a deadline isn't met. But yeah. I still think there's a lot of importance of finishing something and giving yourself a structured amount of time to do something and um, giving yourself an endpoint to it. Especially if you're never going to be happy with the final result. If you know that about yourself and probably anyone that's really deep into a project feels that way, then saying I'm going to finish this project and I'm going to be happy with the result at that point. And if I'm really not happy, then I'll continue on it. Otherwise, set a new deadline. Yeah, set a new deadline. And I mean, I'm a perfectionist. Like anyone who works with me, like I am paying attention to like every single detail. I want everything to be perfect. And it pains me to have to cut ideas and cut features. Mm -hmm. But I want to release the perfect version of something rather than letting good be the enemy of great. Quick question there. Uh, working with teams of people as a perfectionist, how do you, I feel like we hear the nightmare stories of you know, the Steve Jobs or like people that have worked with very ambitious, very perfectionist people, often they don't get along with them extremely well. Everything that I've worked on with you in class or in those endeavors have been very amiable or uh, it's been easy to work with you. And I haven't been on the, you know, hard scale visualization project where perfectionism is the, uh, where I'm not seeing those behind the scenes. But how do you kind of, how do you deal with wanting things at a very high level and then also working with others and keeping them motivated on the projects? It's a good question. I think for, uh, it's hard. It's like, honestly, something that I think is one of the things I work on the most is trying to figure out what's the right balance when somebody's going to give me 80% of what I want. Like, do I just then spend the Saturday night and finish up the last 20%? Mm. Um, do I just say, okay, that's good enough. Um, how do I create structure and process to make it so that it's, what I'm putting out is really, really valuable and really, really high quality mm -hmm. um, while uh, allowing others to make meaningful contributions. Like this is where I'm still learning. I don't actually have the full answers there. Okay. Um, I think that I wish I knew the magic bullet. Mm -hmm. um, I think the thing is, is when you find people you work well with, you just keep them close. Yeah. Like, I mean, you two are an amazing team. Like, I'm, like as you have a thought, like, you're joining in on it <laughs> and vice versa. Like you guys are on the same brainwave. You guys are like complimenting each other. That's an amazing team. And I think you find those people and you just go with it. So like one thing recently, like data science discovery is my um, new data science course that we're building out here at Illinois. Is that stat? It, yep. CSIS stat 107. Okay. So cross listed yeah. three different colleges, computer science, information science and stats. And it's mandatory from some of the newer majors, right? Yep. So every DS major, every data science major is required to take it. Stat and CS takes it. And a bunch of other courses that used to t require stat 100, which is just intro stats, are now allowing students to do intro data science instead of intro stats. Mm. So um, this fall, it was 600 students. Next fall, it's going to be over 1,000 students. Oh, wow. Um, this is all grown from just being 16 students from 16 different majors back in 2019. So the growth has been exceptional. It's been exponential. It's just been amazing. Um, I co-teach that course with a professor down in statistics called Carly, whose name's Carly Flanagan. Right. And she's amazing. Like she and I are on the same brainwaves. We're complimenting each other. Like the skills that she's a perfectionist about, I'm like, eh, whatever. <laughs> um, and the skills that I'm a perfectionist about, she's like, eh, whatever. Right. And I think the fact that we're both perfectionists about the things we care the most about, mm -hmm. and we both respect each other for being a perfectionist, has made it just a really, really, really good team to build out what I hope is going to be the best data science course in the world.
I love that. That's a really good piece of advice. There's, it's rare that you find people that you work really well with. And I think college has been eye-opening on that of finding the right people and surrounding yourself by those people is kind of an ongoing process for the rest of the life. So that's kind of a tangible thing I think the listeners can take is when you find those people that you really work well with, stick with them and continue to work with them. Put, put, put your heart and soul into working with them. Yeah. Cool. So moving on then to some uh, closing remarks, some questions, some last minute questions that are oh, maybe off the topic. Closing. Um, we good. Yeah, we did good. Uh, if you, oh, we've so, got tons of time, so we've got tons of time. So feel free to launch into anything uh, here that you want to talk about. We had some questions about. Uh, we hear a lot about statistics in the news, statistics in newspapers, things that are kind of misleading, where the average consumer or the average person gets misled by things. How oh, do we? Yeah. How do we interpret data that we see around us, and how do we not be misled by those that might want to mislead us or are not even meaningfully trying to mislead us, but just are not treating their uh, stats or their interpretations correctly? Yeah, I guess even like a, a point there is how do you pressure test data that you just see on your screens and things like that? Ask questions. Hmm. I think nerd out. I think one of the reasons my 91 DVOC project, which is my project doing COVID visualizations, went so viral was that... Um, when I released it, there was all this narrative about what should we be doing? What is New York doing? What is the Deep South doing? What are red states doing? What are blue states doing? What is America doing? What is Sweden doing? What is France doing? Like, there's all these questions on what these countries are doing, all these talking heads that are saying, you should do this, you should do that. 91 DVOC was raw data forward presentation of COVID data from trusted sources. So it's data from Johns Hopkins, data from the World Health Organization, data from the CDC, straight data, no AI, no prediction, no generative intelligence, nothing. Just the raw data that you could select, how is Illinois doing? How is Florida doing? How is New York doing? There's a big moment in the COVID crisis that I did a bunch of nerding out with. So the Washington Post published article that said the United States just reached a grim milestone one in 500 Americans had died of COVID-19. So around that article, there was a bunch of editorializing about, oh, if we were just all like New York and sort of end up taking the COVID um, lockdown seriously, it would be safer or masks don't matter. There's all these different competing narratives. And then when we looked at the raw data, one thing I presented in 91 DVOC was the fact that the place that had the most, de most deaths per capita was New Jersey. Second most, Mississippi. Wow. Those were the two hardest hit regions. One blue state, one red state. Hmm. Completely different masking policies. They were in the same place in data. And I think being having that clear presentation of data, knowing exactly where the data came from, allows you to sort of ask questions on what effect does these things have? And being able to have that data and just being able to present it easily allowed, honestly, both sides of the political spectrum to use 91 DVOC because it was just facts. And you could present facts a different way by spinning your facts the way you want. But I think being able to have a single source of truth and being something that was authoritative and trusted mm. was really, really valuable. And I think that's why Governor Inslee of Washington pulled up his press conference and showed it to the entire state of uh, Washington. And Governor Bashir, or Governor Bashir did the exact same thing in Kentucky because they knew the information could be trusted and was presented in a way that didn't lie to you. It was just following honest visualization principles and hopefully gave people context about what was happening around them in the world. Right. Wow, that's, an, that's a really powerful anecdote. 
Yeah. And example, yeah. I don't know if I actually answered your question, but it did. No, yeah. 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 I actually forget what the question was. But I was like, <laughs> that's that's the mission statement for this story. So <laughs> that's awesome. I guess with all these questions answered and things that you've created up till now, if you had a list of questions that you want to see answered, so maybe your top three next yeah. questions that you need answered, what are they? So I think one question that we're not explaining very well is climate change. Hmm. The world is what? 1.4 degrees warmer than 1900s averages or something. How does that affect Chicago? How does that affect Champaign? Hmm. The fact that this past weekend was 80 degrees in the middle of April. <laughs> now it's 40. Now yeah. it's 40, yeah. <laughs> is 40 nor more normal? Is 80 more normal? What is normal? Are these 40 degree swings in two days normal? What's standard? What's... Like, let me understand how all of this relates to global climate change. And what's an anomaly and how are the anomalies getting bigger? Right. Say People say that you can't compare weather and climate, but weather makes climate. So give hmm. me a way that tells me that, yes, the fact it's 40 degrees today doesn't actually matter. But the fact that it is 40 degrees in April more often than it was 30 years ago that might matter. And how this data point contributes to the overall picture is the first thing that I think we're not answering very well. Mm -hmm. So that's like project number one. Okay. Is that uh, something that you're going to plan on working on over the summer? Or? Yeah, no, I, I, as soon as I find like the exact story I want to tell, I want to build something out on that. Project number two, what else have I been nerding out on? Um, so I think the second project is something I'm working on with the whole data science stuff is I think that statistics as a whole seems like a tool you use to lie. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's not a broad understanding of how to actually apply statistics and statistical tests in ways that a somebody who hasn't been in college for 20 years, like let's say you're 40 or 50 years old, mm -hmm. you haven't been in college for 20, 30 years. Can you look at this resource and basically be like, okay, I understand the stats behind this. I understand how this works. I think explaining introductory statistics and just introductory data science in a way that somebody who doesn't have calculus can understand is something that the world desperately needs. I think right now too many people say, oh, data tells us this, AI tells us this, and it kind of almost whitewashes, yeah, or black boxes it, kind of whitewashes the whole facts around it um, and just says, trust me, I've done the analysis. I want everyone to be able to say, no, I can do the analysis. And because I've done the analysis, then I believe this even more. Right. Uh, third, third project. Oh, I think what I've, I mean, a lot of these are kind of just things that when I see a problem or I like looking at some data that I just find the need to do, to kind of solve it. Mm -hmm. um, I think something that has been done somewhat well um this is more like something that for social media something i think you guys kind of touched on a little bit in some of your previous episodes is i think there's this big trend right now of everyone thinking they can do passive investing or passive um income <laughs> yeah there is actually yeah yeah I think interesting topic the world is just hyped about this whole idea of passive income right. money in your sleep yeah and there's almost almost to the point they're devaluing like active income Right. Like, they, it's a narrative of basically 
if you work for an hourly salary, you're working yourself to death, basically. Yeah. And I mean, if passive income was easy, everyone would do, be doing it. Right. And I think certainly there are a few people who succeed with passive income games. I think they are also lying to themselves about how much active work went into that passive income. Because I certainly have some courses that um, I've taught for the University of Illinois that does generate a tiny amount of revenue for me through basically like a 2% cut on what somebody pays for something, 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 um, depending on the agreement for the courses that I've taught. Like, sure, that's passive income, but the amount of time that that took to actually get that going was months, if not years, of actual active work and doing right. the recordings, doing the course, getting on the forums every single week, interacting with the students, like... Right. It's kind of, it's misleading how much time goes into what the small amount of revenue that comes out of it. Like, yeah. obviously, like, the break-even is there at some point, but it takes a while to recover all that time in terms of money. And I, you hope the break-even's there. I don't even know <laughs> yeah. if the break-even is right. there sometimes. Right. Um, and that, I think... Yeah, that's a that definitely it, an interesting topic, though. Yeah, and I think it's at the devaluing of active work. Hmm. Like, I think... There's a lot of value in just putting in the work, putting in the like thousand hours to create something that no one else has created. Mm -hmm. And then certainly like sell it, like make money. But in doing that, like don't pretend like it's all just passive. I don't know. I, this, there's something I don't, this one's like definitely idea number three because it's not as well fleshed out. But I think just kind of sharing the narrative so that when somebody is like just graduated college, they are looking at like a fifty to $60,000 job. And they're like, man, how am I ever going to make a million dollars on fifty or just $60,000? I think if they take that money and actually invest it in themselves, invest in building out something that they're proud of, I, and actually focusing on the active part, like what are you going to spend time with that money on? Then eventually you might build something that is passive. Right. But... The focus on the passive income should be a reward for active work mm -hmm. and not for passive, just having a great idea and sitting and drop selling Amazon or something. <laughs> um, so I think having a visualization on like how much time goes into passive income. Hmm. Where would that data come from? I don't know. Okay. But I think it's a narrative. It's something I've Google searched a lot on like, why are people so obsessed? Because there's so many undergrads I talk to. Are like, oh yeah, I just want to create this web service like this weekend, and it's I'm going to put it up there and charge users five dollars an hour to use it, and right. I'm going to be a millionaire if <laughs> ten thousand users use it. Mm -hmm. And then they're really sad, and I'm like, create it, yeah, let's do it. But then they do it, it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> it's it ten times worse than ChatGPT, and no one uses it, and they're wondering why they failed at passive income. And I think because their goal was passive income, not creating something great. So quick question, jumping off that, I think last question for the episode, what is, why haven't you monetized or chose to monetize your data visualizations? Uh, I noticed there's not, you're, they're very clean. Like you, it feels very uh, transparent. It feels like the information is real because there's almost not ads jumping yeah. out at you like a lot of platforms. Why did you choose not to include advertisements or things that you could monetize based on these very powerful, very visited websites? Eh, I mean, I don't need it. Mm -hmm. I, I think it actually hurts the, I hurt. I think it hurts the brand. It hurts the honesty to have to be selling a sketchy product next to <laughs> authoritative data. Right. Um, I think our world in data does a really good job of having very, very limited content ads. Yep. Um, you mentioned it earlier in the episode, and I think they're a really great example of 
data visualization done right. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I definitely, like their COVID work was phenomenal. Um, I was really proud to often be included in the same sentence as Our World and Data with my 91 DVOC project. I think monetization, certainly, am I leaving a million dollars on the table? Maybe. Um, but I think if I wanted to have millions of dollars, I would have just stayed in investment banking. Like I was making a lot of money mm -hmm. and I had to choose whether I wanted to stay in investment banking or leave banking and come back and get a PhD. And answer important questions. Yeah. And I think it's like at the end of the day, like I'm really lucky to be faculty here. Like I've got a salary that gets me anything I need. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to eat for lunch tomorrow because I have enough money to buy lunch. Um, I'm really fortunate to be in that position. And I think if I can then give back, then I'm going to give back. And a lot of these were also done with students. Like students are not like anyone who's do, learning how to program. Like if you're working as a CA or an undergraduate researcher at U of I, like you're not getting paid nearly what you could get paid if you went into industry. Mm. So they're already like some of these projects are for credit. Some of them are paid depending on the project but they're definitely not getting what they're worth. And I just, I, there's just something that I feel like it would be a little wrong about trying to monetize it. But I, maybe I, that's my yeah. biggest weakness, like convince me otherwise. <laughs> well, I, I am agreeing with you as we, as we talk. I mean, it seems like a noble cause to say, I'm going to give data to people and allow them to make really informed decisions or to understand the world around them. I think this is a great conversation and I think should be maybe a jumping off point for a lot of people to explore the questions that they're curious about, ask why about certain things, and look at the data. Um, as we've talked about today, there's a lot of data and a lot of interesting things that you can keep nerding out. With that. Keep, keep nerding, nerding out. out. Yeah. Well, I think a big thing is make something. Like, I think the thing is, even if you just have to excel the skills to make something in Excel, mm -hmm. like, just take the data and build something. I think the greatest thing you can do is be a creator. Like, don't just be a consumer. Like, if that's Tableau, if that's Excel, if that's Python, Whatever you have, like just answer the questions you have yourself. If it's ChatGPT giving you where can I find the data, ChatGPT will give you great GitHub repositories. It's read the entire internet. It knows where to find data. But it's not going to be so great about being able to create an Excel spreadsheet for you that incorporates these three different data sources. That's something that I think you have to do. And I think you can do it. I think you guys have already done it. I think... If everyone just created a little bit more, I think the world would be a better place. So that's my mission. That's why I'm here at the University of Illinois. Just kind of inspire people, educate people, and motivate them to change the world. So hopefully, you guys, congratulations on changing the world with your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, no, and I, I think you guys are going to create amazing things. And I think that the big thing is just never stop creating. And when you do create something, make it good enough that you're willing to share. Like the GPA visualization was honestly a tool I made for myself with some students. And then we just happened to put it out there. We had no, we didn't expect it to go viral because the data was actually already available on the internet in this we terrible- We were just talking about that. Excel yeah. sheet, yeah. It's it was not, just uninterpretable. Yeah. It's not like I was doing something novel by taking this data that was super secret. Mm -hmm. It's just random statistical data. Right. And just presenting it really, really well. And now thousands of people pick their classes. Yeah. Based on that presentation. It's, yeah. During um, registration week, like, I don't know about unique users, 
but like it would easily get a hundred thousand page views during registration. <laughs> wow, that's wild. So every single registration, we keep it up to date every single year to make sure it's always got the most recent information. And the data is public, the website's public, and the underlying data set's public. So if you like, you know, you know how to program. Mm -hmm. So you could take that data set, import it as a CSV file. You can answer literally any question about the GPAs without even having to trust me. Right. And I think if everyone just kind of made it that transparent, I think we'd change the world together. All right, guys, we've been sitting and talking for an hour. I'm super passionate about seeing you change the world. You're already doing a little bit with surface tension. I think your listeners want to know about you too. What are you going to do? How are you going to create something else? What are you creating other than surface tension? Great question. Do you want to go first, Rod? Yeah, I can start. I really like the concept that you talked about earlier, which is give yourself like a week deadline, do something and make consistent progress. I think I've talked about this project that I want to do for so long, which is looking at the relationship between the chemistry of film photography and then the progression of racism throughout the years and its relationship and how it's kind of translated into how our sensors work. So like sensors in cameras, sensors in sync, like the sync sensors and how they react to different skin tones. And I've never really done too much about it. I've really wanted to write some sort of paper on it or something like that. And so this, I think, has really inspired me to just like dive into it, especially in what you've talked about, like chunks. So setting aside big chunks of time and really making consistent progress on it and just having something by a certain date. I don't know if it'll be next week. I have a big tax project this week, but <laughs> I will get it done soon. <laughs> so are you going to send it to me by the end of May? That's a good deadline. I think I could. No, you think you could. I want to. No, you, you don't want to. I will. You will, yes. <laughs> I love it. Okay. I love that. Right, you will, and it's recorded. All right. <laughs> end of May, I expect an email. Okay. All right. Uh, on my end, having an opportunity to write and to put thought down, thoughts down about things that I'm trying to figure out in my own life in a publicly uh, viewable manner. So similar to, uh, for those listening that are familiar with Paul Graham or uh, people that write essays online, just figuring things out in their life, talking about the things that are important to them, similar to uh, the visualizations where uh, hopefully they're very clear thinking from first principles of why things matter and what should be done about them in the world. So that could be uh, personal ideas or things like climate change or just curious ideas in the world around me. Um, that's something that I want to pursue. It's not as hashed out uh, at the moment, but um, it's something that I want to kind of dive into as a next stage, as a next project. So step one, having a website that has a blog, right? I mean, PG stuff is just a blog, right? Yep. So I think end of May, you're going to have a blog. <laughs> yep. I'll send it a to website. you. Send May. it to me by yep. end of May. We'll do. All right, we'll guys, do. you canceled if you don't get this from me. <laughs> so <laughs> it's online now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's official. So yeah. I, I, that would be so amazing. Like it would mean the world to me to see that happen. So if you guys deliver, I will be so hyped. We will. All, All right. right. Let's make it happen. Cool. For sure. Thank you again, Wade. See ya. Hey, are you still listening? If so, you've reached the end of the episode. As usual, you can find all of our updates on Instagram at surfacetension.pod and look for future releases on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 